He's always got to bring the house down right before I get up, you know. I'm going to start cutting his speaker off back there. Anyway, we are, uh, good morning, first of all. Uh, we are going to continue in our book of Matthew. We've been in here forever, um, and we'll be here forever, I think. Uh, but we are actually in Matthew 24, which is a very prophetic book. And so a few weeks ago, we went back into Daniel chapter 9, which is also one of the most prophetic books, if not the most prophetic in Scripture, uh, one of my favorites. And we preached through the 70-week prophecy, uh, and the 70-week prophecy basically just began when there was a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and it gave 70 groups of seven until the return uh, of Jesus in his second coming. Now, uh, there was a span between the 69th and 70th week, and the 70th week, that last seven years, is known as what? Tribula tribulation period. Rapture starts it. I think I got you confused. But anyway... So uh, last week we started talking about the, those last seven weeks that, that when the rapture begins, uh, when the rapture happens and all those people end up disappearing, uh, the Antichrist comes to power. This is the perfect opportunity for him to take control. Uh, like I said, no one knows exactly how he's going to do it. I believe he'll probably say God purified the earth and what's left, he sent me to lead and, and he'll do great for three and a half years and bring peace. Then the second three and a half years, things changed. So last week we discussed how in the last three and a half years, uh, things really got tough in that last the 70th week. Uh, the Antichrist actually revealed his true identity. And not only did he reveal his true identity, he claimed to be God and set up in the temple and said, all of you will worship me. So this is when all this started happening is when the Jews started saying, oh my goodness, if that's the Antichrist, then that means we actually did crucify the Messiah. So at that point, there's going to be several people uh, of the nation of Israel who will actually believe, right? And the problem is, is when they believe, yes, they will be saved, but it's going to be in a very difficult time frame uh, because those remaining three and a half years, he's going to persecute the believers. He's going to try to kill them. He's going to chase them down. It's going to be a very, very difficult time. It's going to be persecution like the world has never seen. And so bad that actually Jesus just told believers, just, just run. Just run and hide. I mean, he even said, listen, don't even go back to pack a bag. When you see these things happening, don't get any personal items. If you're outside, don't go back in the house. Just run. Just get away because they're coming and they're coming to destroy all believers. So it's a very, very difficult time. Uh, but today, we're going to begin talking about uh, the second coming. Jesus is going to actually start discussing his second coming. And when I say the second coming, I mean the return of Christ after the 70th week or after the tribulation period. Whew. Okay, that's as fast as I can catch you up. All right, so we're going to jump in this week, Matthew 24, starting in verse 29. And it says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So, remember, Jesus' disciples wanted to know all these signs of the end, and this is a very significant thing he's talking about today. He's saying, here's what's going to happen after the tribulation period, when I return, when I in my second coming, when I come after that, this is what's going to be going on. Okay, now, the fact that, that it happens this way verifies that that 70-week prophecy that Daniel gave us was accurate. Everything Daniel said would happen in those 70 weeks happened, and that includes the second coming of Christ at the end of the 70th week. And the thing that stands out to me is that it also proves that prophecy is knowledge of the future, but if that knowledge of the future doesn't encourage you to change the present, it's worthless. And see, the Jews, they knew these things. They knew how prophecy was supposed to play out. 
they should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah when he came. All those things they had already known, but they saw the future and refused to change their present. So now something that should have been a good thing, the second coming of Christ, was a very terrifying thing. So they didn't allow it to make any changes in their lives. Now, it's kind of interesting how he does this because he says, here are some things that are going to happen that prove it's my second coming. All right, and he's going to talk about some miraculous celestial signs. Okay, now, he mentions four that are very specific. Okay, he says that the sun will be darkened, right, is one. He said that the moon will not give its light. He said the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, you've got to admit something here. God really put on a big production for the second coming. I mean a big production. Because he wanted everyone to understand, this is your Messiah and King. This is him. The one that you killed, the one that I allowed to leave this world beaten and broken, put in a borrowed tomb, the one that you think you defeated, he's coming back and you will find that he is your King. And I am not going to let it be unnoticed. I am going to put on a huge production so that everyone knows this is my son, your King. Right? And in Luke's gospel, Jesus adds a little more detail about the same events. He says, uh, there will be signs uh, in sun and moon and in stars and on the earth and dismay among the nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So let's kind of get a picture of what's going on here. Okay, this is huge. Because... Remember, anything that goes on in the heavens affects things here in the earth. Like the gravitational pull from the moon affects the tides, right? All of this is linked together almost like the same creator made it all. Kind of strange, isn't it? Right? And so what happens is when the stars start falling and the moon stops giving its light, all of a sudden we're going to see things start to happen on earth. I mean, there are going to be tidal waves. Imagine what would happen to the oceans and the seas if the moon just stopped existing. Imagine, there's going to be tsunamis and tidal waves and earthquakes and so many things going on, so many terrible tragedies that have, maybe you've seen bits and pieces of those throughout the creation of time, but nothing like this. It's going to be cataclysmic. There's going to be so many things happening at one time, and this is going to be like the biggest show of power that God has ever brought upon the earth, right? I mean, it's going to be a huge show of power. No one can even imagine what this is going to be like, and it all makes sense he's doing that. Because he wants people to understand, here comes the king. You're not going to miss this. I don't care where you are in this world, you all see the same moon. Guess what? Gone. You all see the same sun. Gone. The same stars. Gone. You're around the same waters, and they're going to be you know, in turmoil. All these things, no one will miss the production that's going to happen with all the natural disasters before Jesus returns in the second coming. Now, I want to veer off for just a second and cover something. Now, a lot of old school believers think that churches shouldn't use production. And it just came on me when I was working on this message. I've had people come up to me before and say, well, I mean, I, I guess you're one of those churches that, like, uses electric instruments. And, you know, and I'm sitting here going, seriously, where are you from, Walnut Grove? I mean, everybody does. You know, and they're like, well, I just don't think churches should have, you know, when I say production, 
I mean, you know, the use of lights and video and sound and tech and things that, you know, have been happening for the last hundred years. But a lot of people feel like churches shouldn't use production in their service. And I could not disagree more than I do. Because I'm telling you right now, what God was doing in this production was just revealing the things that we already know, which is this world collectively has a bad case of ADD. It does. Now, let's be honest. We can't stay focused for any amount of time on anything. Everything keeps like this constantly. And he knew it took a production to get people's attention. And God has always done whatever's necessary to get people's attention to the message of salvation. He's always, always, always done that. And he's always used these grand productions to emphasize the more important events. And let me give you some examples. Uh, For example... Uh, when God called Moses to service, okay, he didn't send him an email. He didn't send him a letter or a carrier pigeon, right? When he wanted to get his attention to draw him into ministry, Moses is walking around in the desert, and a bush is completely consumed with fire, and nothing else is burning. Okay, so that would stop you, wouldn't it? You're walking in the desert, and you go, uh, was that bush on fire? I mean, the whole thing engulfed in flames, and out of this flaming bush comes a voice that says moses the ground you're standing on is holy ground remove your sandals okay is that a production that's because he knew he's not going to walk away from a burning bush talking to him okay he used a very big production to get his to get his attention there when moses crossed the red sea that was a huge production now god could have said oh they're chasing you poof poof moved them to the other side right that could have happened but he needed the armies of the Egyptians to see how powerful he was. He needed the children of Israel who were following Moses to see how powerful God was. So how many people here have ever watched any rendition of the, you know, like Ben-Hur or Moses, the prince? Of, you guys know all the different movies, right? I don't even think their imagination's as good as mine. Because it says they went through on dry ground. So that means that the ocean, the, or the sea here rather, parted in a big wall of water on each side. And I can see them running across that bottom of that land, I mean, of that sea with dust kicking up from their heels because it says it was dry ground. Now, if there ever was a production, parting the sea and letting people run through on dry ground, that's a production. Am I right? He could have done it another way. He chose to have a major production there. Jesus' birth was a major production. I mean, think about it. There was a star that settled over where he was born. Right? There were angels going out and telling people, hey, you got to see this. You know, God is with us. The child, the Messiah, has been born. Right? It even had a soundtrack. There were angels singing. Right? I mean, it was a production so that everyone would know this is from God. The baptism of Jesus. Here's Jesus in the water. And the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And a voice out of heaven, the voice of God booming, says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. Is that a production? The entire Trinity present in one spot at one time, and the voice of God just booming? That is a production, right? And Jesus used big productions just like God did to grab people's attention. He did all the time. He fed thousands with a few pieces of fish and a few loaves of bread. He walked on water. Now, he could have calmed that storm. He could have been sitting on the beach in a lawn chair, drinking a Verner's and said, 
and it had been calm. But he walked on the water when they were afraid and calmed that storm. Why? Because that is great production. You know, it's not like he calmed the storm. He comes walking across the water <laughs> and then calms us. That is production. That's production. Okay, because people will never forget that. Okay, so if God used production to draw people's attention and keep them interested in the message, we will too. Right? But think about this. If he made such big productions for all those other things I just listed to you, what kind of production do you think he's going to give for the return of his victorious king, his son Jesus? The one who was beaten beyond recognition so that no one could even recognize who he was. This, I mean, this, the tendons were torn off his back when he was whipped. He was mocked, spit on, laughed at. How big of a production do you think there's going to be when his son comes back as king of kings and lord of lords? That's why this was so big. This was a huge production because he didn't want anyone, anywhere, to miss out on what was going on here. Now, you have theologians and people who you know, have more time than common sense sometimes Always trying to explain things away because there are some Christians that just can't believe unless they can explain it themselves. Right? Those people drive me nuts. I like being dumb, and I'll tell you why. I'm that guy that just says, you know what? I'm going to believe it because God said it. He created everything. He's done a fine job. I don't have to figure out how. I know he said it. I know he's going to do it. Good enough for me. See what I mean? But there are some people that have to try to figure everything out. Right? And I've, I've heard of some of the people trying to explain these signs that I just read to you. And they say, well, the sun being darkened and the moon and the stars falling from the sky, that could be nuclear war. And the fallout and the big mushroom clouds, could, could the dust and the ash and could like, you know, hide the, the sunlight and, and hide the moon shining and make it look like the stars fell. And it could be so cataclysmic that it could cause earthquakes and maybe the ash from the earthquakes. And I'm sitting here going... Or maybe God just says, drop, 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 and they fall. Maybe, that, maybe God just said it, and it happened. I'm cool with that. How about you? Right? That's, I mean, so many people try to explain that away. Other people try to scientifically explain how these, you know, how these celestial and earthly anomalies happen. They have to have a scientific explanation. They start trying to think it through. Listen, personally, I just think all that speculation is just a colossal waste of time i think it's a waste of time here here's the recipe for faith god said it i believe it that settles it that's the recipe for faith listen you don't have to explain it i don't have to know how i just have to know that it's going to happen and if he said it's going to happen it's going to happen and you know to be honest with you the people who are there when this is taking place will not care how Will they? Do you think they're going to go, wow, everything is jacked up. I've got to go figure out why. <laughs> Nobody's going to do that. When they see all these things happening at one time, the first thing that's going to come to their mind is this has to be of supernatural origin. Oh my gosh, the God we have mocked and made fun of and, and made fun of people for following has actually followed through with his plan. He's real and he's coming. Because these signs are going to make them know that. They're not going to be trying to figure out 
scientifically how this is possible, they are going to be running, right? Because this is going to happen, right? And what we're going to see next kind of, you know, kind of makes all that null and void anyway. Some of the things that are going to happen will make sure they don't have time to even think about it, right? So Matthew 24, 30, it says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Okay, so this is kind of awesome. Do you guys remember back after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples? Remember that? And he walked with them, and he talked with them, and he spoke with them, and he goes up to the Mount of Olives, and he gives them their final instruction. He says, go out into all nations, uh, teaching them to, you know, to obey all that I've commanded. And he gives them those, that final great commission. And then he's taken up into heaven. And they're watching him leave the Mount of Olives and go up into heaven. You guys remember that? At that moment, those angels that were there said, hey, that's how he's going to come back too. Listen to this. Acts 1, 10, and 11, it says, As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, this is him going up in the ascension, behold, two men in white clothing stood behind them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just what? In just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Right? They told them. They told the disciples, yeah, this is amazing, but he's going to come back that way too, right? And here's the really cool thing is not only is he going to come back the same way coming from the sky that he went into, but he's going to come back to the exact same area. Did you know that? He left from the Mount of Olives, and Zechariah tells us in 14.4, the beginning part of it there, 14.4a, in that day his feet will stand what? On the Mount of Olives. He left from there, and he's coming back to there. I just, I think that's amazing. Now, I mean, there's some big differences in how he left and how he came back. There's some really big differences in how he left and how he came back. Because when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended after bringing eternal life to the entire world. That's what happened right before he ascended. But when he descends to earth, he's bringing eternal judgment. There's a big difference between what was happening when he left and what happens when he comes back, right? I mean, big difference. And you're also going to notice that there's going to be a dramatic role change in who he was when he left and who he is when he's coming back. There is a big role change because, you see, when he left the earth, he was the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who allowed himself to be beaten, the one who allowed himself to be broken, the one who allowed himself to be put in a borrowed tomb, the one who allowed himself to be tortured, the Lamb of God who, silent before his shears, allowed them to kill him to pay for the sin debt of the world. That's the Lamb of God, and that's what we saw leaving. That's what the apostles, the disciples saw leaving was the Lamb of God. That's what they saw leaving. But in his second coming, it's not a lamb coming back. In his second coming, he will be the lion, the lion of Judea, no longer passive now. He's king. He's the lion of Judea. Revelations chapter 5, starting in verse 4, says, Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, very important, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book, 
and its seven seals. Now, we know that this is talking about Jesus when he said the Lion of Judea, the Root of David, because the Root of David is a direct reference to Jesus. And if you look at Revelations 22, starting in verse 16, he said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am what? The root and descendant of David. I am the root and the descendant of, da- of David, the bright and morning star. So who is the root and descendant of David? Jesus. And he said the root and descendant of David is also the lion of Judea. When he comes back, no lamb is coming back. It is the lion, the lion of Judea. I, I love that imagery. See, the lamb offered people what they didn't deserve. It's called grace. The lamb offered grace to whosoever would believe. The lamb said, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to offer it to you anyway because me, the lamb, the sacrifice, will pay for your sin so that all you have to do is believe. The lamb offered what they did not deserve, grace. The lion, on the other hand, will give people exactly what they deserve. He brings justice. The The lamb brought grace. The lion brought justice. See, that's the difference in the coming and going that we're seeing there, right? So, I mean, this is huge. That's why it's so important, and this may sound strange, but I want you to get to know Jesus while he's still the lamb. I want you to get, if you don't know Christ, you need to get to know him while he's still the lamb. You don't want to get to know him as the lion. Now listen, I'm not saying that during the tribulation period and during those difficult times, someone can't be saved. They can be, but it's not going to be good. Because I just said earlier, those who get saved in that time become a target for the Antichrist. People are going to be chasing you to kill you. You know what would be a lot easier? Let's just get to know the Lamb of God that takes away the, world of the, the, the sins of the world. Let's get to know Him. Right? Because the lion comes bringing justice. Okay? That's why I think it's so important that you get to know Him right now. Right? I'd rather you become a believer when you don't have to run for your life for being one. How about you? That just seems to make the best sense to me. Right? Now... When Jesus returns, it says that all the unbelieving people of the earth will mourn. Matthew 24, 30. It says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now notice it says all the tribes of the earth that I know some people think the tribes I mean I don't, I don't understand that well here's the deal when he's talking about the tribes of the earth he's talking about Israel that see Israel is broken up into 12 tribes right and the whole reason that there was a 70th week the whole reason there was a tribulation period was to turn Israel back to Christ so it makes sense that his first priority is to gather the nation that had believed to himself you see what i mean that's the 12 tribes that he's talking about there right it was set up for them now don't take me wrong all unbelievers anyone anyone who is not a believer will mourn that day right and any just like any jew will mourn that day but the jews will mourn worse if you can imagine you know why because they knew all this was going to happen and didn't do a dang thing about it They knew how the Messiah was, you know, the Bible actually told them that the Messiah was going to be born of a virgin from Nazareth. It said all these things that nailed it down to where it had to be him. And they rejected it. Then the Antichrist comes to power and some of the Jews believe. 
but some still won't. Now imagine when they get their final confirmation and they realize that they really honestly rejected their only hope, even though they had been warned about this for thousands of years. I'd say that would be some serious mourning, don't you? I mean some serious, serious mourning. Huge mourning, right? And it's, it's going to be rough. It's going to be a bad time. Here's the other thing is they're not going to see the broken Jesus that they put in the tomb. They're going to see King Jesus, which is going to make it even worse when they see. They wanted a king. Remember I told you they wanted a king that was majestic and powerful and led with all sovereignty. Here he is, and it's Jesus. There's going to be mourning like you can't even imagine when they see that when they see him coming in this great glory now john describes how he's going to come and this is just a small description but this is amazing this always gives me the willies you know what i mean do you ever get like your skin crawling off your body when you you guys ever get that like when somebody runs their nails on a chalkboard does that do it anyway this is what i get when i read this revelation 19:11 says and i saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of god and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him on white horses let me stop for just a second why would an army getting ready to go to war be wearing white Anybody have any idea? Because they ain't going to get dirty. They're just going to sit on their horses and go, get him. And Jesus is going to take care of all that. That's why. They're not going to have to do anything, right? Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. This is the part. Whew, listen. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whew, if that don't move you, somebody needs to take your pulse. (laughs) King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the triumphant God coming back. This is Jesus coming back as the king we all knew he is now. Right? This is him coming back. Right? And in in verse 30, this sounds terrible before I move on. Am I the only one that that I shouldn't feel this way, but I am still a sinner? But am I the only one that wants all the people that beat him and stuff to be looking up and going, oh, man, am I the only one? I would just love Jesus to look at him and go, what do you got now? You know, I know he's not like that. I am. I'm just saying. All right, first, let's take a look at this. There's something in here that a lot of people have asked me about, and I'm going to clarify it. People have asked me, why does it keep saying he's coming in the clouds? Why do they keep bringing up the clouds? And when you read about his return, it always mentions the clouds. And I'm going to explain that to you. Matthew 24, 30, the last part there, see, says, And they will see the Son of Man coming, what? On the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Throughout the Bible, clouds have represented the presence of God. Okay, if you look throughout the Bible, it always represents, a cloud always represents the, the presence of God. When Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law, from God what surrounded the mountain a cloud 
a cloud surrounded the mountain. It scared everybody to death because God was communing with him and giving him the law. So a cloud signifying the presence of God was there. When God was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, at night, at the nighttime, he led them out with a pillar of fire, a large pillar of fire that was basically God's arm saying, follow me. And during the day, it was a pillar of clouds representing the presence of God. It has always meant the presence of God. Daniel even describes the clouds in an earlier vision he had in chapter 7, which I'd love to preach this. But anyway, Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13, says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's another name for God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is talking about Jesus starting his millennial kingdom. And he saw the cloud because God was present in this vision. So powerful. John talks about the clouds when he talks about the second coming. Revelation 1-7. John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even, listen, those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. So listen, people say, well, is that figuratively speaking when it says those who pierced him? Is that representing the nation of Israel? Well, it could be. But remember, if you read in the scriptures, you will find that, that people who are in torment right now can see things here. How? I don't know. I didn't make it. But I believe if there's one thing that God would want them to see, those that pierced him and those that, that crucified him, I would think they would, he would want them to see him coming in all of his glory as king of kings, don't you? Right? They're going to see that. Right? King of kings. And I just, I just don't, I don't know if we actually grasp how magnificent of a sight he's going to be. I don't think our minds can grasp that. Right? Because Jesus will be the embodiment of the Shekinah glory of God. You ever heard of the Shekinah glory of God? I would love to give you a, an awesome definition of it. It's really tough to do. The Shekinah glory is just, it's pure brightness because all it is is looking upon pure righteousness, pure justice, pure sovereignty. And it's so bright that normal man can't look upon it, the righteousness the Shekinah glory of God. Moses, when he was on the mountain, wanted to see God, but what did he get to see? Just the hind quarters. God said, you can't see me. It would kill you. But I'll let you see my hind quarters when I pass by. And you know what that happened? When he came down off the mountain, the Shekinah glory was still on him and he was glowing. He had to wear a veil from just seeing a portion of God, the hind portion which probably isn't the best portion of God. And he was glowing. He had to wear a veil. I want to glow, don't you? Hey, if you've ever seen my shirt off, I do glow, but another way. Anyway, I I want to see that. I mean, the magnificent. I just can't even wrap my mind around how he's going to look. But the magnitude of his glory will wash any doubt of who he is away from everyone's mind. They will know that this is the king of kings. 
in the Lord of Lords because he's not just going to be the king of kings. He's going to look like the king of kings. There'll never be one look like this again, and there never has been one look like this before. A king in all his righteousness and the Shekinah glory of God. I just, that's amazing. Don't you think that's awesome? I am looking forward to that. I'm looking so forward to that. Except I'll be seeing from behind him, not the other side. But anyway, now let's move on. Matthew 24, 31. It says, Jesus said, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Okay, now, when Jesus returns, remember, this is the 70 week, the 70th week is going to be over, or the tribulation period is going to be over when he comes. And it says when he comes, he's going to be gathering the elect. Again, who is the elect? Israel. Why? Because the 70th week exists to restore Israel. Now, not all of them will believe, but as a nation, they will, right? Now, he's also going to gather the Gentiles who believe, but his main purpose is, is fulfilling that promise that he would never allow them to be done away with and that he would gather them to himself, and that's what's happening right here, right? But this, this is kind of a, a mixed emotion time here because those who haven't believed, this is going to be a time of mourning and regret and judgment. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be mourning. It look, Zechariah tries to explain that. Zechariah 12.10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as, as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So in one sense, he's coming back to gather his elect, and, and there's no punishment with that gathering. He's actually gathering those Jews that have believed so that they can be delivered from the wrath of God. So to them, it's going to be a day of deliverance, but to those, who, those Jews who have not believed and everyone else, they're going to be destroyed. So it's kind of a, a mixed emotion time, but it, it's, it's going to be an amazing time. Now, I don't have much time left, but I'm going to, I want to talk about application for a little bit because there's one thing about prophecy that I think a lot of us miss, and that is Prophecy isn't written to scare us. Prophecy is actually written to reveal, you ready for this? God's love for us. Prophecy is written to reveal how much God loves us, right? Because prophecy reveals how patient God is with us, right? It reveals how patient he is because only a loving God would allow such obstinate people that constantly reject and, and, and refuse to believe and mock and make jokes about and blaspheme. That's been going on for thousands of years. And yet, he still waits. He hasn't brought it to an end. Why? Because he's patient. Why is he patient? Because he loves us. See, what people don't understand is he wants a relationship with you more than you could ever want one with him. And if we have a child, anybody here, don't raise your hand. You can give them a dirty look, but don't raise your hand. Has anyone here ever had a child that went astray? And you might get mad and tell them they have to move out. You might, it, there's all kinds of things you might do out of your moments of anger. But let me ask you this question. Would you not wait hoping to have the opportunity to be restored to them again? Would you wait for that? If they came to you and said, Mom, Dad, I love you, I'm sorry, I know how, would you not receive them? You would wait your entire life for the opportunity to build that relationship again and to embrace them. Am I right? God loves you more than you could ever love your children, your spouse, anything. And he is waiting like you would wait for that child that's 
gotten away. It's fallen out a little bit. Like you would wait anticipating, hoping, praying that he comes back. God waits patiently, giving everyone a chance to believe because that's how much he loves us. 2 Peter 3.8 says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Don't overthink that. You know what that means? Time has no meaning to God. That's what that means. Don't overthink that. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Did you hear that? He doesn't want anybody to perish. Nobody. And he wants everybody to come to repentance or to change their mind about him. Everybody. This is what he wants. And what this should tell us is if you think you've done too much, if you're that person that hasn't come to Christ yet because you think you've done too much or you think you haven't done enough, throw that out the window. It's not what it's about. The reason he's still patiently waiting before the end comes, the reason he set the date when he did long into the future, long time ago, was hoping that it would give you time to believe in him. That's why. That's why it's taken so long, because he loves us that much. Listen, God is not shocked that we sin. He's not shocked that we make mistakes. He's not shocked, believers included, that sometimes sin punches us in the mouth. How many believers in here have ever been punched in the mouth by sin? Anybody? Anybody ever been like decked right out your shoes, laying on your back by it? That doesn't shock him. That doesn't surprise God. It's not like God goes, no way, not a Christian. That's not what he says. That's what self-righteous people say, but that's not what God says doesn't shock him. He sent his son to die because he knew we couldn't be good. It doesn't shock him that we sin, that we get knocked down by sin. But what hurts him is that he sent his son to die innocently so that sin can't be victorious over you when it does knock you down. It doesn't matter what you are. If you'll believe, he'll accept you. And if you're a believer and it's knocked you off the path, he will restore you. But choosing to stay knocked down That's what bothers him, not the fact that you sin. He expected that. Do you follow me? This is so, so important. Satan is going to try to use this stuff to distract you. He's been using it for years. He tries to distract unbelievers because he knows the time's short. He knows it's almost over. If he can keep you sidetracked with money and power and all the other things that distract us in this world, long enough for your time to end or all time to end, then he's kept your soul from heaven Mission accomplished. Believers, if he can keep, he can't take your salvation. Once you're a believer, you're going. You're going to heaven. He, he'll, he'll, he'll say, okay, I, I understand that. But what he will do is try to make you completely worthless by getting you distracted, making you always, you know those hurt feeling Christians that are running from church to church because their feelings are always hurt and are always mad at somebody and blaming God for everything? Yeah, you're a big baby, but he still loves you. He does. He still loves you. I don't know why. They still love you. No, we've all been that person at one time or another, haven't we? So-and-so hurt my feelings. I'm not going to go to hearing you anymore. <laughs> God's going, it wasn't me, fool. All right? But listen, he, he, believers, he wants you to be like that. He wants you to be sidetracked. He wants you to be angry. He wants you to be hurt all the time. He wants you to, to, to think terrible things about other believers because if he can keep you from being a godly, loving person that draws people to Christ, victory for him. You're going. You're not taking anybody else. See what I mean? He's done this since the creation of time. It's always worked. 
And I think it's working more now than ever. I mean, some of the things that believers should be the crux of our lives, reading, praying, going to church, living our faith, those should be the crux of our lives, and they're pretty stinking low priority anymore. Go to church if nothing else fun is going on. Right? Read as long as your series isn't on that you can, you know, binge watch on Netflix. I might have binge watched a thing or two, I'm going to be honest. But anyway, right? Anything he can do. We, it just seems like nowadays we've lost our focus like the enemy's winning there. But we need to look at this prophecy that we're studying. Look at this prophecy. Soak it up. All right? Because prophecy tells us what's going to happen in the future to inspire change in our lives now, in the present. You know that's coming. You may be a believer and you may be delivered from it, but do you want your family and your friends and your coworkers, is that where you want them to end up someday? Then that should inspire you to do something, to get off your blessed assurance and do something. That's what that should do, right? Listen, it's just like this. If you see a sign that says road closed, that should inspire you to take another path. Am I right? You can't see a road closed sign and go, I don't believe it. We'll keep driving because you're going to run out of road, man. Right? That's what you do when you ignore prophecy, the sign that says here's what's coming and yet you do nothing about it. Right? That's what that does. We have got to let it change us. To know to have knowledge and to not do anything about it is ridiculous. Now, I'm going to close after I read this from James. I love how James put this. James chapter 1, starting in verse 22, it says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now, this is people that the facts never inspire or change them. That's what, basically what he's saying is, Someone who's a hearer but not a doer of the word is someone who looks in the mirror and goes, man, my hair is jacked up. I got stuff hanging out my nose. I got ear hair sticking out. I got grease on my face. Oh, well. And they leave and go on their way. That's somebody who's a hearer of the word, not a doer. You know something's up and you refuse to accept it. You don't make any changes because of what you know. Right? And then the end here, the, verse 25, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So listen, I mean, if you take one thing from this message, future knowledge should inspire present change. We know what's coming. What are you going to do about that? Does prophecy, does knowing that you've escaped it, inspire you to make others escape it also? Or are you discontent with you escaping it and the heck with them? What kind of changes has prophecy inspired in you today? That's a question I want you to take with you. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask if you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always give an invitation. And here's why. We just believe that the Word of God's powerful. We don't ask people to come forward or anything like that. I just want to pray for you. Because if, listen, if God is speaking to you, you know it. And I just want to pray for you that now that he is, nothing will distract you. So if you'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact, put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down, email you. I just honestly will pray for you. Bless those people. Bless those people. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you too. But believers, I am going to pray for us because we know. We know what's coming. We know what we've been delivered from and what's coming for those who haven't believed. I want that to stir in us so that we stop being judgmental 
and it's not our job to judge people. It's not our job to hate people. It's not our job to separate ourselves from people. It's our job to love everyone. And through that love, try to lead them to Christ so that they can avoid these terrible things that are coming too. It's time that Christians are known more for what they believe about the love of God and less for what they disagree with and want to argue about. So I'm going to pray for us too. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and compassion and mercy. And I thank you, God, that you love us just the way we are, that you'll save us just the way we are. And I pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, that whatever's holding them back, you just remove it. Let them realize that if they can believe that what your son did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word promises they'll have it. I just pray that they make that decision today and reach out to us or to another Christian organization so that they can have someone to walk with them in their journey. For those of us who believe, Lord, I don't want the knowledge that we have to go to waste. God, let the prophecy that we've studied inspire a change in us. We know what's coming, but let it change us now. Give us a desire to reach people and draw them to you, to live lives that draw people to you. God, we don't know how much time's left, but give us the desire to use whatever time's left to honor and glorify you and draw others to your kingdom. We just pray that as we leave here today, you would go with us and keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that we would come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. we meet again we just pray god that you would bring us all back here again safely and let us one more time give you all the praise honor and glory you're so worthy of we just thank you for all things and we ask these things in jesus name amen